Welcome to Mercer Marsh Benefits podcast series on the current and future state of healthcare, where we will be joined by experts to explore some of the thorny issues that will be impacting employees and businesses. I'm Dr. Luke James, MMB's Workforce Health Leader for Europe, and today we will be discussing value-based healthcare and how this can perhaps support the rising costs of healthcare, improve quality of care and outcomes for patients, and importantly, really begin to tackle rising insurance premiums and medical plan costs for businesses. Across the UK and Europe, we're seeing hikes in premiums of, in some cases, 40 to 60%, while utilisation of corporate schemes is soaring, with the state healthcare systems under severe pressure with record delays and waiting lists. So I'm delighted to be joined by an expert on this area today who has been driving the uptake of value-based healthcare approaches for many years, Dr Dan Howcroft, previously an orthopaedic surgeon and now Chief Medical Officer of MedBell. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Great to see you. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Um, so let's dive straight in. Many of our listeners may not have come across this concept of value-based healthcare. Um, can you maybe give us a brief summary of what it is and a bit of the history about it? Yeah, of course. I mean, the principles of it are very straightforward, um, but the implementation, unfortunately, has proven to be far from it. So the, the, the basic premise is we want to be able to provide the best outcomes for patients that matter to them. So the idea is the outcomes that matter to them, not just outcomes that matter to the, you know, the society, it's the individuals, and deliver that at the lowest cost, and that would equal value. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of equation that we talk about. It came about in the early noughties um, from Harvard Business School, actually, so not from a clinical background, um, and they just they, it was a situation where they decided to try and take some of the learnings they had from um, their business experience and bring it into healthcare, and, that's where, and it was more about measuring and so on and so forth, so that's where it came from. Uh, and there are six main pillars. So the first one, is um, to build these things called integrated practice units. Uh, these are essentially structures which are focused more around the conditions that patients suffer. Um, so for example, in the current system, we might have orthopedics, you might have rheumatology, you might have cardiology, so on and so forth. They're clinical disciplines, but actually patients can cross between many of those. So an integrated practice unit, for example, might focus on diabetes or it might focus on arthritis rather than what I mentioned before. That's the first point. The second point is to measure everything. So measure costs and outcomes, because that's how you eventually decide whether you're actually improving value at all. Um, another one they talk about is to use what we call bundled payments. This is this is essentially a model which looks to um, make allow the provider to take on some of the risk in terms of how well they manage their patients. So um, we can talk about that later on. It's important then to integrate, fourth point, to integrate across different providers. So uh, at the moment, the system's quite fragmented. It's very difficult to follow a P&L across and, and a value pathway across different providers. So you have to make sure you can integrate that. You need to try and do it across as big a geography as possible. Uh, and the idea there is that looking after more people means that you can start to specialise into increasingly more rare conditions, if you like. So it doesn't make sense to set up an integrated practice unit for a patient of one, but if you can get 100 or 150, then it starts to make sense to, to put services around that. Um, and then the final one, the sixth one, is to make sure you've got an IT platform which allows all those things to talk to each other and, and collect everything. Yeah. Great, and a bit more on the outcomes then. So in terms of measuring those, um, I've heard of PREMs and PROMs. Can you maybe explain a little bit more about those and why they're so kind of valuable? Yeah, of course. So PREMs and PROMs are, are one element of it, and these are essentially patient-reported measures. So one is patient-reported outcome measures, which is the PROMs, and the other is patient-reported um, experience measures, which is the PREMs. So these are ones where the patients self-report how they've either experienced things or 
they um, prefer, produce, given a, a, um, a questionnaire which they respond to explaining what they can and can't do. Um, on top of that, you've also got uh, sort of more hard outcome measures too. So these are things like, you know, infection or um, uh, even death, dare I say it. So these are, these are sort of hard measures too, which you need to factor into all these things. But um, they're, they're all very important because they are the basis for being able to determine whether we as a healthcare provider, health insurer, whoever it may be, are actually having a positive impact on our patients, clients, uh, yep. all those all those people. So it's an important benchmark that we have to have. And it's interesting, I mean, the risk thing is interesting. So that ability to share risk between maybe the, the person paying and the person um, delivering the treatment, I think is, is really interesting. And I'm sure that'll um, be, quite intriguing for a lot of our um, listeners who are working in risk in other areas of insurance. So I think that's that's a, a really key point. And then this idea that we may be, and I might be naive, but that we may be actually carrying out procedures that um, we shouldn't be doing or that you know doctors would really do that or healthcare systems would really do that. Is that the case? Well, I'll come to your first point actually, and I'll come to that in a moment. So I think the question around bundled payments is interesting because it's something I've reflected on a little bit, which is that within the current insurance model, often there isn't any risk taken on by the providers. But having spent more time looking in the self-funding space where people are paying for themselves, often there is a, a sort of any complication cover for a period of time is included as part of the price. So it's almost like we've got bundled payments, but not in the non-self-funded space. So, that, that, so it's not a big leap, I don't think. In terms of this this idea of people doing the wrong thing, I think I think inevitably the answer to that is that has to be happening, and we know that from a number of sources. So there was the NHS Right Care data which came out, which which demonstrated that across the UK, this is NHS data, but nevertheless we'd see different, significantly different intervention rates for different treatments in different areas. Um, and more recently, there's been the Getting It Right First Time program led by Tim Briggs, which is looking more at the outcome from intervention. So looking at things like uh, uh, infection rates and so on and so forth and, and the numbers the, the difference are, are startling I mean there can be a situation where the infection rate post-operatively in two places next to each other can be eight or nine times different um, and, and, and similarly the right care data shown the same thing about intervention rates I think what it tells us is it definitely happens and what it doesn't tell us is why it's happening and I think it's too easy to jump to conclusions that there are these sort of bad actors everywhere who are knowingly doing the wrong thing uh, I think the reality is that a lot of it is systemic. So uh, having been through a sort of surgical training program, you tend to pick up what you're taught by your colleagues and therefore different regions tend to maintain their own approach to things. Everyone thinking that they're doing the right thing. And it's only when you start to throw open, lift the veil if you like, through outcome collection and, and, and data sharing, you start to see there are these big differences which can then allow things to, um, to, you know, to balance out a little bit, we can learn. And the other point of course is this idea of these um, procedures limited clinical value. So there's, I actually don't know how many there are, there are now, um, but the idea of these is that they are, they, there's evidence suggests that these treatments don't have any value. Um, I think in a lot of that, that's true, but I think in any, <laughs> having been trained through the medical training, one of the things I'm sure we both learned when we were younger is when we were taking the exams, you never say never and you never say always. So yeah. it's about how do we make sure that you get the, the right patient selection. So even a patient with an arthritic knee, for example, who the, the evidence say won't be benefited from a knee arthroscopy. Actually, if they've got a big tear which is blocking their knee from being able to straighten their knee, it would still be, I would yeah. argue, it would still be relevant to that patient. Yeah. So it's kind of right, it's that whole right Correct. person, right place, right right yeah. treatment. Correct. But of course, we're, um, 
we're seeing lots of businesses paying for medical plans and paying for treatments without much influence over what outcomes they are seeing because yep. they may not see those. Yep. But also, um, how do how do patients get to know what they should be having done and, and where they get their advice? Because you get such a, a varied amount of advice. Speak to 10 different doctors, you'll probably get 10 or more different um, opinions. So you so say really challenging. Um, so I, I suppose the point from that is getting some consistency um, around what treatments we should be delivering based on data, based on outcomes. Yeah, and I think that's the other point I didn't mention with problems and prems, that you're absolutely right. It's, it's a nightmare to know who to go to, whether I need to go and see somebody, all the rest of it. Even for us, you know, sometimes we get, I'm sure you get the same thing. As clinicians, you get people coming to us saying, who should I go and see? I might have a view if it's a, my own area, but if it's not my own area, I'm as, I'm as in the dark, in the dark as everybody yeah. else, exactly. Yeah. And there's not really a place you can go to. I mean, that, that brings back the idea of the problems and prems, which is that for them to really be of value, you have to make sure that everyone is using a consistent, different, the same ones essentially for the same conditions. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, you've got apples and pears. So you then go, well, my outcomes are really good. And they all says my outcomes are really good, but they're different outcomes, so you can't compare them. So yeah. that's what this thing called the International Consortium of Health Outcome Measures, or ICHOM, which is another um, offshoot of the Harvard business team who developed the whole concept because they were trying to bring out this standardized approach for everyone to look at the same outcomes. Yeah, yeah great. And from your experience, any examples of where this has actually been kind of clinically applied and, and successful and reduced costs while improving outcomes? Yeah, I think what I've learned is no one yet has nailed it from top to bottom. So one of the things you've got to appreciate is that probably different of those six points we were talking about, some people have done some of those really well, but to do all six is really hard, right? So a good example is um, there's, a, there's a clinic over in Germany called the Martini Clinic, which is essentially a specialist IPU, and what they focus on is prostate cancer. So they have everything in there focused on prostate cancer. Um, it doesn't really talk about the costs necessarily, so I can't tell you what they're, what they're charging for this, but what I can tell you from the outcome perspective is that they're having significant benefits. So example would be they've seen a, um, a reduction of severe incontinence in the patients that they see versus the general German population of 11 times. So it's 11 times less. So these are patients who men have undergone prostate operations Correct. and you would see a lot of people having had that procedure they would be um, leaking urine they'd be incontinent that's urine. exactly yeah. right that's exactly right so so essentially you've seen a significant reduction just because they're all focused on that and that's an outcome that they really look at and they want to make sure they improve and they keep improving the process similarly erectile dysfunction is another thing which you see and what we found is it's well, i think they found it was about 55 percent lower in right. those patients too. So it's, it's, it's about focus really, that's all it is. Yeah. Um, so that's one example from an IPU perspective. Another one that's quite interesting, which is on the bundled payment is, uh, and this one I actually learned about when I was um, on, a, on the course in Harvard, is that uh, it's called the Tyrex, so it's a Medtronic device. And the idea is um, for people that have pacemakers, there's always a risk of infection. And I can't quite remember what that risk was, I think it was five or 6%. But this device is a little sleeve that you can put the pacemaker in, which the manufacturer said will eliminate the risk of an infection. Now, they took that risk on by saying, if there is an infection, we will pay for it to be sorted yeah. out. And so that then focuses them to make sure that what their claims are, are true. Yeah, and, and shares, that, shares that risk with them as well. Correct. Yeah, yeah. really, really interesting. And it's interesting, um, again, which is probably not um, maybe that um, focused on by our, our, our clients or businesses when they're paying for medical costs for their employees mm -hmm. as a benefit, 
is these ongoing costs that are a result of the original um, presentation, the original treatment. So, for example, something like you know cancer could result in complications way down the line, or more costs way down the line. Or you know you talk there about prostate operations. If that isn't done to that standard at the Martini Clinic, I think That's you right. said, um, if it's not done to that standard, you may find then you've got claims for seeing a urologist for urinary incontinence, which are additional claims. So it's kind of a bit of a snowball effect unless you kind of get it right first first time, I suppose. Yeah, and I think linking those episodes together, I think, isn't necessarily that clear these, at the moment. So you might just see urology claims a year down the line, but you wouldn't necessarily appreciate that it came from that index procedure. That original procedure. And I think that, again, is the importance about the, the data and the data yeah. collection and being able to analyse that. Um, and so are there any areas that, you know, you, you've got a previous history in insurance, we both have. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any areas that you really think, say, insurers should be focusing on um, to really try and apply some of these kind of value-based healthcare principles or what they could be doing or what experience you've had of trying that with the insurer? Yeah, I think... Um you know, if we think about how insurance came about, it's essentially a financial institution which is looking to try and maintain claims. And I guess that means that a lot of the data, certainly from my experience, the data that's held is predominantly uh, billing data, which is fantastically useful for them to make sure that things are paid appropriately you know, on the right time and so on and so forth. But it's very hard then to really drive true value out of that because none of that data is clinical. There's not really any outcome and the outcome data that go along with that. So um, I think the first thing, I, would, I think the most important thing actually is you've got to start somewhere and, and having read around all this, the most important thing to do first of all is to collect data. It has two, two benefits. First of all, it sets you on the outcome, you know, the outcomes of the value-based journey, but there's also good evidence to suggest that when organizations start collecting clinical data, just because they're, they're collecting it and looking at it, their outcomes tend to improve because no one likes to look at you, oh my goodness, that looks terrible. So you tend to see this, this movement anyway, which will probably mean they'll be saving. So the first step I would suggest for insurers is, is there a way that they can encourage um, data to be collected, outcomes to be collected, not in an adversarial way, which just makes it sound like it's going to be used against them, but actually say to them, do you know what? Just for collecting data, we might pay you a slight premium. And I would expect that that slight premium would pay itself through the fact that by measuring the outcome in the first place, you'll see an improvement in, in the pathways that are delivered. So that would be the first thing, I guess. I mean, there are lots of other things. Um, I think, again, my experience is that there tends to be quite a lot of churn of patients, uh, sorry, churn of clients or corporate clients particularly, but also just general customers. There has to be a point where um, we've got to think beyond two or three years. You've got to start thinking, how can there be a degree of uh, um, working across the industry to, to see the value across a longer period of time in the best interest of the patient? Not easy, but I guess to a certain extent, maybe the general insurers have done something similar when it comes to dealing with um, drink drivers and, and how they share that risk and things. So there's there's probably a degree of precedent there, but that, those are probably the two big ones to start Yeah, so that, again, comes back to data, doesn't it? And, it does. Yeah, sharing of data and um, how you interpret that data. Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier about the, the rises that we're seeing in premiums um, post-COVID. They're really starting to hit now. Um, and, and some of that is being driven by utilisation, some of it's being driven by, you know, cancer costs with all developments in cancer. But clearly to this point about how you control those costs, um, you know, any advice around where we can start looking, businesses can start looking in terms of some of those principles around value-based healthcare, how they might help start controlling some of those rises? Yeah, I've had a good think about this. I think the 
the reality is that over the last, well, probably, probably since the pandemic, a little bit before probably, we've spent a lot, folks a lot of time on prevention and access to primary care services, and whether that's face-to-face -face or more commonly um, virtual. Um, but we haven't really seen a benefit from that in terms of the claims. And the reality is that I think about 10% of, of care costs, are, uh, oh, oh, sorry, there's 10% of costs in primary care, and the vast majority of costs are in the secondary care side of things. And we haven't really addressed that at the moment. Um, so I think we have to look at how we can change the focus in secondary care to look more at value rather than volume. So again, just to explain the term, there's a thing called fee-for-service, which is um, the idea that you know you get paid for doing something. So if you do a knee replacement, you get paid. If you do a, a, a cardiac stenting, you get paid. Um, the, the whole system is therefore optimised around that. We have to try and undo that a little bit so that we can start to pay for value rather than outcomes and that hopefully starts redressing things a little bit and and then what I think we need to do as well is is it's the integration piece again we've got this great access to primary care how can we integrate that into a more efficient secondary care pathway rather than what happens today which is they often go through a primary care setting and then they sort of just sent off into secondary care without any sort of yeah integration yeah, yeah and I think that's um that's certainly something that we're seeing it's all a little bit anecdotal at the moment collecting data around it but we're seeing this huge rise in utilisation of primary care and a virtual GP, um, but we're not maybe seeing the real value in using that by using diagnostics and management in primary care. They're getting kind of passed on into secondary care, which is not a good use of, of funds. I think that's the risk, isn't it? If you, if you increase access at primary care, but you haven't really addressed the secondary care, all you're doing is pushing more patients into secondary care where we know the just and it's nobody's. It's not. This is not criticism at all. It's just the way the system's set up, which is around this fee for service. So you know, it, it's likely that you get more consumption of care. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think you mentioned at the beginning that the implementation is difficult. But what else is stopping the kind of widespread adoption? Because it sounds a great idea. It makes sense. It's got data behind it. What what's stopping it being adopted? Yeah, it's really difficult. I think I think I've mentioned it was partly already, which is that the the data flow. People look at different things, so insurers look at billing data, hospitals may look at their, their um, utilisation data, everyone's looking at slightly different things and they are looking at different metrics. Um, so that's an issue. Even, even in healthcare data, um, there's been a big push to try and align NHS and private data as well, and actually they've got two different coding systems. So I know there's some work being done in that too, but that makes yeah. it very difficult. Um, so I think you know, data is one, one incredibly um, difficult thing. I think the other point is that we, how do you define, we, we talked about this idea of collecting outcomes over a pathway, a patient's pathway. Well, how do you define a pathway? So at the moment, a lot of outcomes are based on from the point they need knee replacement to the point they're discharged. Whereas really, to get more value in it, you've got to start pushing the um, pathway, uh, the, the outcome pathway earlier in the journey. So it might be when they start getting knee pain or it might be when they're totally fine, but we haven't got outcome measures that kind of go across that whole area yet. It's, it's, they're still quite focused on particular interventions. Um, yeah, I think the, the, just the inherent problems with incentives at the moment. At the mo in reality, um, unless there's a big shift, it's going to be hard for any provider to move to a value-based system because they will automatically probably lose out compared to those that aren't doing it. So it almost needs to be a big push from somewhere to yeah. make it happen. Yeah, um, interesting. And again, I imagine that the culture amongst um, healthcare providers, maybe the incentives are 
there to continue doing what they're doing because the, the money is flowing into the exactly, right direction. Exactly, exa and that's, yeah. that, I was reflecting on that as well earlier on, which is I think that's exactly right. At the moment, everything's still working, so why would you change? Now, it might be different if some of your um, your clients said, you know what, I want to I want people to start using value now. And if enough, if enough corporate um, clients decided to start pushing that, then that might cause a change because people yeah. start to get unsettled. Get momentum behind it. Exactly yeah, right, yeah. interesting. And so maybe tell me a bit more about um, what you're doing at MedBell um, to deliver on better outcomes and for patients and the kind of value, how you're addressing that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, the reason that we moved, I moved in the first place to MedBell was because I saw this opportunity for value. And I guess, just to give you a background, so we are the first digital hospital, uh, we believe. Um, and what we have is a technology platform and a patient care team who provide a single point of access for um, patients in their secondary care journey. So the idea is we have a whole bunch of network of different providers. So we're, we're agnostic of the actual delivery arm, but the patient gets a single experience and a single point of contact, which we think helps. Um, within our technology, we can start to collect some of these outcomes, PROMs and PREMs, et cetera. Um, which means that we can start to guide patients down to one which is more appropriate to them with transparency so that they have full choice over it, but ultimately we can make it very clear that if you want to go to this place, it's gonna be more expensive than you go to this place. And the same the same surgeon is happy to do this, the same operation at both of them. So it provides that sort of platform approach. Um, and the, the the goal eventually is we're starting very much, we started very much in the self-funding space, but the goal is to provide the same level of care for insured patients longer term. But ultimately, it's, it's as I was saying earlier on, the goal is to try and provide uh, support over the whole journey of somebody's life, not just the fact they've got knee pain. How can you start to extend it so you're with them on their wellness journey as well as their illness journey, if you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's where we are. Uh, some bold right. plans, some, some bits we've got in now, and yeah. we've got some bold plans for the future too. But, but really important, the, the example there you're giving, um, we're getting, everyone's getting older, they're, they're going to be working for much longer. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have much more illness in the workplace, many more long-term conditions hitting the workplace, especially knee pains and things like that. We, we need to get at the front end of that to kind of prevent the need yeah. for a for kind of operative intervention. Exactly. Yeah, great. Well, look, it's been really great to hear your um, insights today, Dan. Um, I suppose for, you, for me, a few things that stand out. Um, Value-based healthcare is a means to kind of control costs, but actually fundamentally is about improving outcomes for patients and make sure we're doing the right mm -hmm. right thing and intervening um, at the right time. Um, data just came up again and again, <laughs> um, I think in every walk of life, but certainly within medicine that, you know, if you've got poor data, you're not gonna be able to um, deliver on um, that analysis and then really improve outcomes. Um, and then interestingly around the, um, dare I say, collaboration between, within the industry, between insurers um, around collecting the right type of data and then sharing that data um, is key. So um, not easy things to kind of overcome, um, but um, maybe we'll get there and maybe we can chat again um, in the future a bit um, around that. That'd be good, Luke. But thanks so much for joining. It's been really great. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, so listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you're interested in hearing more on the healthcare issues impacting our clients and their workforce, and how we can begin tackling these as well as the wider UK and global healthcare developments, then please do look out for further episodes in the coming months. We will consider topics such as the role of artificial intelligence in healthcare, the quest for longevity, and the importance of delivering on equitable access in areas such as women's health. So thank you for joining and have a great rest of the day.